Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Regen Agri podcast. I'm Harry Farnsworth and I'll be your host today. In each discussion with industry experts, we bring you the future of farming and the latest movements of the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. Today, we will be covering the tantalising topic of green finance, getting to the root of how farms can access green funding outside of subsidies and how a transition to regenerative farming can be financed. Joining me is Paul Litzala, Chief Investment Officer at New Foundation Farms, a regenerative agri-food enterprise on a mission to produce food and fibre in a way that supports soils, communities and human health. Paul started his career in the city working in private client investment management. Following the global financial crisis in 2008, his career took an exciting twist when he enrolled on a permaculture course and became interested in systems thinking, which has led him to where he is today. I'm also welcoming Tim Coates, who will be joining us with two hats on today. Tim farms 1,400 acres in northwest Oxfordshire. This is predominantly arable on Cotswold Brash. However, he's starting to bring livestock back into the rotation as the farm adopts regenerative principles. Tim is also a co-founder and chief customer officer at Oxbury Bank, a dedicated agricultural bank which supports farmers in a sustainable way. Paul and Tim, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank, thank you very much indeed, Harry. Pleasure to be here. Yes, thanks, Harry. It's an absolute pleasure. Paul, I thought it was quite interesting, you know, reading your bio there. You left a, an industry on, on a cliff edge in 2008 and, and you have potentially walked into an industry that's on the cliff edge of, of a massive amount of change uh, as well. Why, why do you think financial companies should be interested in regenerative agriculture? For a host of reasons, really. I mean, if you, if you think about the, the really big picture, there's something like 4 billion acres of land that's been farmed globally, 23 million acres in the UK alone, and banks, financial institutions are, you know, they have, a, they have a lot of exposure to that land. So they should be really be very, very interested in, in the quality of the asset that they have on their balance sheet. So for the financial world, actually, it's, it's really in their interest to understand what is going on with agriculture, both here in the UK and, and overseas. Roughly about 05 percent of land is being bought and sold each year. It seems like a, a stagnated market or a, a market which wouldn't attract much interest because there isn't much movement like that, like the housing market, for example. Do you see this as a problem for attracting initial investors or, or you know, or Tim in your position to, to be uh, lending money for land purchasing? Well, if I can, I can jump in and just just take that latter point, I think it's not always the changing ownership of land that uh, creates new land managers, if you want to use the widest sense of it, um, before we get into to farming. But there's often uh, there's a variety of uh, stewardships, as it were, that could be taking place. So tenancy agreements, joint venture arrangements, contracts to farm, etc., all of which have different and complex financing arrangements. Um, uh, just at the UK level, I think we might see that small percentage pick up a bit next year what with the uh, the one-off exit payment that's being proposed by DEFRA so that will be an interesting you know, interesting um, pivot point I think um, in terms of in terms of land changing hands but I think there's actually quite a dynamic market already going on in terms of who is 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 farming or who is managing what land and for what purpose and what their financial needs that are there for. 
Yeah, and Paul, in in the role of New Foundation Farms, is is the the land you are acquiring is that all land you're purchasing, or are you taking some in in hand in agreements as well? In the first instance, it would be ideally an outright acquisition. You know, primarily to to be able to have control of of what we're doing going forwards. Then you know, as Tim was saying there there are all sorts of different ways of getting into arrangements farm sharing renting off balance sheet financing share share farming so we feel there are there, there are lots of different approaches that can bring as many farmers and people into the regenerative um, equation as possible i mean also just taking your point about there isn't a lot of lands there's not a lot of volume of land being sold. Well, you know, that may be true, but what what we're setting out to do is to demonstrate that farming regeneratively is is better in terms of the economics and the and the profits and better in terms of the ecology of the land. And that's one of the many points of proof of application that the market needs to see in order to start moving ahead and with what you've done is you've attracted investment into new foundation farms and well maybe you're better to explain how you how you've attracted those investors because it's not perhaps the traditional way that that someone might think that uh, that you would find money for a venture like this well yeah i mean we 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 are in the middle of um our capital raise and Funnily enough, we we just got off the phone with a banker, Goldman's banker in New York, who's been in this field for 25 years um, in in the environmental and sustainable agricultural field. And his he was you know absolutely saying you know what you're doing is brilliant. Uh, we'd we'd love to support it. We're a bit too big for you, but um, it's it's really really super important for organizations like yours to to be successful to show what it is that you can do you know it's a it's a bit of a funny mix because it's 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 a mix you know it's it's stripes and spots or or fish and fowl because on, on one hand yes we are investing in lands agricultural lands and then on the other hand we are an, an enterprise that's you know got processing farm shop on-site transition to regenerative farming so there's there's a bit of a mix in there and and the conversations that you know we're having you know on one side we're talking to foundations who are very keen to see you know the ecological and the social and the community benefits whilst understanding that the business model is going to be profitable and then you know on the other side of the equation we have let's say investors who are more tuned into the financial return and so i mean i think it's quite interesting that you, that you see both sides of the spectrum understanding that there's something in it for them and you know our job is really to to, to structure the deal in a way that that meets investors needs and, and that's you know currently what we are working on and tim you come at this from quite a unique standpoint that you, you not only farm but you also are involved in banking which has a strong agricultural focus and you know oxbury has has come into the scene at a very interesting time to start uh, an agriculturally focused bank i mean with your with your farmer's hat on i suppose i mean how does the how does the journey seem for you to 
finding funding or or finding people who'd be interested in in investing in in your farm as it changes towards regenerative principles yeah that's a <clears throat> interesting thing i think there's a, f- a few threads i'd like to pick up up there um so sort of with, with the farming hat on i think and this is again speaks to that land use and land management piece my sort of experience since since taking over as the, the as the manager of my farming enterprise uh, sort of five years ago has been i think a story that is probably being told quite a lot across the country so there has been that succession bit at the at the front end and that itself sometimes needs financial support to to allow that to happen you know we are talking predominantly here about small to medium enterprises that are run often by families um, and extended families so quite often there needs to be a financial element to allow uh, that transition uh, to happen um, and the transition is a word i'm going to keep coming back to i'm afraid so sorry if i if you get sick of me saying it and then from from that the the sort of other thing that's definitely being seen in the in the uk market is a consolidating effect a gradual one but it is happening and it has been happening over time and i think may accelerate as as we move into the 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 agricultural transition as the government would call it part of that consolidation isn't necessarily about changing land ownership although it might be and so there will be i think a case of farmers of a certain size or farming enterprises of a certain size growing incrementally larger and that is going to create a potentially a, a capital uh, expenditure requirement if it's land acquisition, but actually almost certainly a working capital uh, operational expenditure requirement um, that is going to require financing. And that is an experience I've had myself in in the, in the last few years. I've, uh, as well as running the home farm, I've taken on the tenancy of the of the neighbouring farm. I'm in I'm in conversations to to do a contracting arrangement with with the other next door farm and. And, and what I need is, is is sustainable and sensible finance to support those activities, particularly if I'm introducing new and interesting, exciting regenerative measures there. Um, huh. So, so I know that experience firsthand. And and at Oxbury, you know, in terms of developing our product set, you know, these uh, themes are very much part of how we're constructing our offer to to our farming customers. And what's the scope of um you know say a, a proposal lands on on well either of your desk? I mean, how how do you how do you change the the eye of the beholder to see a natural capital asset to be as valuable as yield coming off the field? It's a different mindset and it seems it's a change we all need to go through. But how do you put that across to someone in that sector who potentially hasn't looked at land in terms of natural assets before? I mean, if you follow the, the curve of um, investing, it's you know, it's gone from, you know, there's philanthropy, there's corporate social responsibility, socially responsible investment, ESG, impact investing. And I suspect natural capital investing is a is a bit of a follow on from from impact investing. And, you know, there are true believers in the marketplace who are investors and, and those true believers as a as a group of people are getting bigger because this whole issue of climate crisis, ecology, natural capital, it's in the headlines and, and people have a, a better understanding and, and a better grasp of it for sure. So that that's sort of that's one aspect, the true believers. And then the other aspect is to, is to say, well, is this actually just a better way of doing business? And and that's what really starts to crowd in the let's say the, the mainstream investors, and you know that is what the large the very largest institutions are beginning to see. So 
there is definitely a tipping point happening in the marketplace in terms of people saying we're not just doing it because it's good we're doing it because it's good and and it's better so that's really the you know the the best of all possible worlds is when it's when it's doing good and it's doing and it's actually a, a better investment i'm sure tim has got a lot of interesting things to say about the whole transition piece and you know getting from a to b but my gut instinct is that this this whole world of natural capital is becoming more mainstream. Yeah, I think let's take let's take a quick step back and think about uh, why we're even talking about natural capital now and uh, natural capital accounting and natural capital investment. And I think it's not a radical thing to say that actually, in terms of the outcomes of what we expect from our ecosystems, there and this is the, the public goods type argument. We are expecting certain outputs and outcomes. So we are we are expecting that the natural world is able to support a diverse population of life, including human life and therefore human economy. And we're expecting it to deliver clean air, clean water, healthy and sustainable food and a variety of other other services you know, uh, as well, including uh, now we're actually asking it not only to maintain a healthy climate, but actually potentially uh, help us restore a healthier climate that we, we may be damaging. So what's clearly gone wrong is, you know, from an economic point of view, is that this has all been externality to date. And actually, we now need to bring back the true cost of all of those services into our financial mindset to ensure that, uh, you know, the human economic activity appropriately prices the value of all of those ecosystem services, be that the provision of clean air, clean water, and of course, food that supports all human life on the planet. It's something that we, you know, we're looking at in terms of our our platform, you know, is is trying to give that uh, quantified or, or verified outcome that those practices are happening. And we're launching a greenhouse gas calculator with the ISO calculation, which, you know, will give access to these financial markets and to say carbon credits, for example. But, you know, I think what people are really interested in and I'm sure this is something you've probably discussed, uh, well, both of you and Paul, with with the future of new foundation farms is, yes, there's, the subsidies are on the horizon. We, we've all heard of uh, ELMS and we all know roughly, give or take, what's it going to involve. But the payment side of it isn't completely sealed away yet. And there's a lot of chatter about, well, you'd be able to access this market, that market. But if I'm Joe Bloggs down in, yeah, down in Kent, and I, I haven't spoken to a financial company before or, or I've never used the voluntary market you know a lot of these terms are quite confusing and and not you know specifically built for people who like myself are quite novice in the financial markets how can we ensure that farmers aren't put at the back of this well what will effectively be a, a drip down effect from the markets downwards and make sure that they are getting full economic return for for those systems they are providing outside of subsidies that's a very big question with a, with a lot of detail to be filled in. So, you know, when, when it comes down to, to Joe Bloggs, who's farming in, in Kent, our business, you know, at New Foundation Farms is to make the transition from conventional to regenerative and to do it without elms or, or without carbon subsidies. So, so that's something that would come on top. If you think of the really you know, long term, you know, if if we're farming ecologically, if we are producing energy ecologically, 
then you know we we won't need carbon subsidies in, in 20 years. So it, it is it's a transition game. It's a transition subsidy to you know help people move from one system of farming to another. But I, I really do genuinely believe that the, the key piece of technology to to move agriculture and farming along is it it's it's having you know the knowledge base and the proof of application and not just subsidies but there's there's um you know it's it's training farmers and providing finance that you know allows them with comfort to, to make these sorts of make these sorts of moves look I, i'm i'm not a farmer so it's very easy for me to say these things and i'm very cognizant of the fact that i'm not a farmer and it's not my daily reality so i can say this sort of stuff at a thousand feet or twenty thousand feet you know we we do have third generation farmers in our team and and you know the the experience that you know we i i've heard is that you know you're so up against it in terms of the multiple jobs not only are you the accountant the farmer the you know the engineer the the mechanic the dad you know so on and so forth you've got so much going on in your life that the government the industry it has to be able to create a space where this knowledge can be effectively transferred where we see farms going through the regenerative transition so there's proof of concept and and it's the whole process of going from a to b is de-risked um so i'm not sure that it's like a a blanket market opportunity to to go and you know go off and get these subsidies i think there really has to be a lot of strategic thought put into this from from all organizations about how we most effectively create change a very interesting um uh, idea that tim i just saw that you you started speaking when i did so if you wanted to come back on that yeah i'm just going to say i completely agree that the importance of knowledge uh sharing knowledge transfer um and the idea of collaboration of the industry coming together both farmers working with each other you know at various scales is 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 going to be really important and obviously there is there is some provision for that in elms uh in the the, the local nature recovery and the landscape scale uh, tiers of that uh it's clearly being suggested that 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 will be supported from some government spending clearly but you know i, I it would be remiss of me not to say that you know one of the rationales of why oxbury and, and our approach and why specialism is needed in agriculture is because there needs to be that understanding of of those daily realities as Paul was saying of what it means to be a farmer and all of the considerations that you are holding not least your financial position and that you know fundamentally it's it's a business um, and you want to be sustainable both financially as well as environmentally and those two things whilst they should be and will be i'm sure in the future um a, a virtuous feedback loop at, at the moment can seem almost catch-22 i mean you know to steal stuart stuart roberts from the nfu's line it's hard to go green if you're in the red and you know that's that's sort of an easy easy soundbite. It might sound a bit flippant, but it's it's quite true. You know, people's immediate uh, views are, uh, what is my financial position today, and what will it be tomorrow? And you know, Oxbury, we're trying to be the the trusted partner that can help them optimize their financial position such that they can they can go on a transition. And it is a transition. Oxbury, we're very you know we're not we're not here to preach. We're here to meet people where they are today and um and have have honest and, and open discussions about financial requirements that will put farming businesses on 
um, a secure footing and get to the end goal, which is sustainable food production. Uh, and we do that through do, through very bespoke products and a, and a real understanding of, of all of those intricacies of what it means to run run a farming business. Both make very interesting points, you know, and also Paul, what you're saying, I quite like that idea of actually, you know, you're looking at if you're looking at these markets, these credit markets as the long term goal, it's actually it's going to become it's just going to become the norm. Green finance is just going to become finance. But obviously, there's this going to be this you know what, what they say in vegetables here in the UK this hungry gap and the money for the transition uh, or the larger transition of the industry and you know even outside of the UK is going to have to to come from somewhere I mean what what do you think the key player who are the key players what are the key things apart from I know you mentioned the technology there Paul that are missing from from that plan from that from that business overview it's really a number of different things I think I mean that you know the key the key the key one is are there enough farmers being trained in, in regenerative farming? So, you know, what, what does that look like in the UK, for instance? Is it a, is it a few hundred? Is it a few thousand? Is it tens, tens of thousands? I mean, I, I suspect it's it's sort of less than a thousand. It's like all it's like all these. If you look at industries, say the you know the the renewable energy industry or smartphones, it 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 doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of thinking. There's a lot of research and development. There's a lot of investment, and it's a it's a combination of government regulation, government money, and working with private finance to to make these things to make these things happen. So you know, you, the, the example of um, renewable energy. You know, what are we now? Sort of, we've we've had we've had solar panels for something like thirty or forty or fifty years. Um, we're at a stage in the world where you know ten percent of energy comes from renewable sources so it 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 does take a long time to get these things moving but we now have lots of examples across several different you know lots of different industries to be able to say well you know what what does it actually take to to join this up and to get it moving but fundamentally you know if you don't believe that we've got a problem in agriculture with conventional farming um and then you know there's lots of you know, Tim, Tim was absolutely, you know, spot on. You know, it's a catch-22 situation. I'm, you know, I, I'm not thinking about going green if I'm in the red. So mm. th- there's this, there's this much, there's this much bigger mindset shift piece that has to happen in government. Let's say that you know, organisations that support farmers, people like us who, who are, you know, getting on and doing it. So. That, that there's this you know sense of urgency that actually this is just a much better way of doing things and if we continue doing things the way that we're doing them today well you know, guess what there's not going to be any topsoil left in 20 or 30 years mm-hmm. so you're not going to you know you're not going to be able to farm and it's at you know at all I mean you know you might think that's a very um extreme point of view you know you, you go and look at the research and, and that's exactly the scenario that that we're looking at so it really is absolutely on the government's shoulders that they, they should be really researching and pushing this agenda absolutely yeah i mean if i if i take the view of, of you know actually uh, perhaps tim you're better to do this but if i take the view of, of, of a farmer here you know I'm a, I'm a bit stuck between a rock and a hard place i've been told to go down a certain uh spec, you know very um specified route you know in the past using xyz and you know 
that's the way you farm with inputs to get higher yield. I'm now sort of at the point where I'm now being told that actually I'm causing environmental damage uh, and I've got to change. You know, it's a very uncomfortable position to be sort of constantly told that you're doing things wrong and, and the, the buck seems to be landing on the farmer's door, which obviously there's the aspect of they are able to facilitate the change. But I can I could understand why there would be some level of resilience to change because, you know, pride of uh, feeling, you know, like the underdog. There's so much that could be said around this. Um, I almost don't know where to start. But uh, I I think first things first, picking up on um, something Paul said, I would I think my approach uh, as, as a farmer to some degree on this and uh, the sort of advice I'd almost give to, to anyone is don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I think it can look quite uh, intimidating to think, oh, my God, my enterprise is going to have to just change to almost an unrecognisable state in quite a quite a uh, short time scale. Uh, so my advice is just to start, do something, take an approach, um, which 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 is what's the low hanging fruit to what you can do in in next in, say, if you're an animal crime in next year's rotation. Or what is your approach that you can take to enhancing your productivity and efficiency, which will um, you know, may have some upfront costs, but will no doubt, you know, repay itself over time. And also, you know, it, it, productivity and efficiency improvements will only certainly lead to a lower emissions profile, for example. So it, it's it's don't rest on one's laurels. And I think actually the thing is that um, while there is resistance to change, you know, and that's not just in farming, that's just a, a pretty human characteristic. Actually, uh, this is this is a community uh, that is actually pretty good at pulling in the direction of which way the wind is blowing. If the government can put a policy and, and let's call it subsidy a, arrangement in place uh, that has a pretty clear direction, you know what? People will follow it. You only have to look at the uh, countryside stewardship um, agro-environment scheme running here in the UK, which has allegedly been competitive the whole time it's been running for the past decade or so nearly now um, in terms of applications. And it's never been subscribed enough in terms of applications to actually ever get competitive for the funding that's that's allocated to it. Oh, that's not true this year because everyone's seen the writing on the wall as the transition to Elms. So suddenly there's more applications going in than have ever been seen before because the you know people can see which way the wind is blowing and want to get used to things that they might not have not have been doing for before for whatever reason. So while there is some some resistance, it's it is that point you were making, Harry, about actually it's don't attack the sector that's fundamentally is is has been trying to do one simple thing, which is f- feed people. You know, now we might have a view of how successful that's been. And it goes back to my point about externalities, you know, feed people, but at what cost to to health and the planet, et cetera. And, you know, just for my bit for stand up for British farming, you know, we're, we're, you know, we have, you know, some of the best plant health, animal health and welfare standards on the planet. And, you know, we're actually starting from a pretty good baseline here in the UK. And let's, you know, let's take take on the mantle and, and lead the charge of showing showing everyone else how it can be done. Absolutely. But I think it's uh, it's never fun to sort of you know make it make it feel like it's all on all on your door. I mean, fundamentally, we're talking about the food industry here. It's it's everyone's responsibility. The joyous British countryside, which is is a beautiful and uh, a place to 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 visit, look at, and work and live in, you know that's that's managed by people. It's managed by farmers. It's a created environment, and that shouldn't necessarily change because it can adapt and it can become. Um, you know, to use the, the word we're talking about, more regenerative in its practices for for a whole range of good environmental and health outcomes. But actually, I think we should recognise what the strength of position we are in, and realise that there's a there's a strong community and economy 
uh, of, of farmers who want who want to do the right thing and are keen to get on and uh, and do that in a way which you know keeps keeps their thriving business going into the next generation it's definitely and um you know talking about looking at the whole food industry as well and you know something you mentioned paul about uh the sort of mixed enterprises that you're going to have as part of new foundation farms you mentioned farm shops um in that as well which obviously will have a retail element you know have has much consideration gone into how that food will be priced or you know how you can fairly reflect the the farming methods while also presenting the consumer with affordable nutrient uh, rich you know nutrient dense food yeah no absolutely we have thought about that and um you know we're starting with fairly modest ambitions at a thousand acres but big enough to show that you can make you know big enough to show that you can do it as a business ecologically and economically you know the way the way that we have thought about the question of um, affordability initially we're working on the basis that we would have an organic premium so you know something like a like a riverford or a an able and coal but you know our 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 longer term analysis is that you can be or we can be let's say you know think thinking much bigger than new foundation farms we can really reduce the the costs of farming through having healthier soil different farming practices taking out a lot of the input costs like fertilizer you know, for instance, so, you, you know, on one side, you're reducing the costs. And on the other side, you know, if we get this right and, you know, we we create more farm shops, you know, selling directly to uh, customers, you know, more locally, more processing on the farm, then you start to capture the, the value chain that, you know, typically would leave the farm, go to the wholesaler, get turned into something else and end up on your on on the supermarket shelf. So I mean there there is a, a lot of value to be taken back onto the farm to drive farmers' profits. You know, frankly, make it a more interesting, exciting business that, you know, young people want to to be a part of. And, you know, you you, you can you can pass that higher margin on in in the form of affordable prices. Absolutely. But I think there's just there's there's a much you know wider, much broader, much deeper question about our connection to food and our connection to the land. You know, I think there's something very important about being able to go to a farm shop and seeing where your food comes from. I think that's really a key part of this whole mindset shift that we were talking about earlier. Do you think? Um, I mean, because I know with one of uh, your other hats, Paul, you you've been involved in. Uh, in a bit of carbon credits with biochar and do you think that that um the sort of environmental credit markets not just carbon could have a, a part to play in in making that transition if as a consumer i can see it that the farm i'm buying from has been producing x amount of biodiversity net grain credits or or carbon credits that might help subsidize the initial high cost of transition to that sort of farming uh, but keeping the food price low, it feels like there's quite a, an interesting dynamic to be had there. Yeah, I, I I think you can approach it. You know, it's context specific, it's market specific. 
it's going to be different in the United States to the UK to Europe to, to, to other places in the world for sure. I mean, in the world of biochar, the, the way that we're thinking about it is to sell carbon certificates forward via an exchange, and, and that you know really basically that monetizes something that you're not going to get for five years and you get that money up front and of course you know if you get that big lump sum of cash in terms of a credit for doing environmental good then absolutely that that forms part of the transition finance and you know it's 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 you know down to you know each individual farmer and business person to to figure out how best to use that money but yeah i mean absolutely it's it's a part of the mix and um tim i mean as a dynamic new player in the sort of financial market with this agricultural uh interest i mean it, you guys you guys are surely open to new models that you know we're insetting and uh and bringing in players that potentially haven't been in the food chain before uh, into new business models, which you can potentially front the money for and you know, repayment in, in credits. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, there's some really really interesting things here. You know, in terms of you know fundamentally, you know, banking uh, is about is about lending uh, and and managing uh, you know the credit risk of of that. And uh, you know, as with any um, new business model or adapting business model or changing business model, then you know that comes with its own set of um, of risks that we have to understand. And again, I go back to why we're a specialist, uh, you know, in the sector. So we're we're always at the forefront of understanding that change and that movement, so that we can support the the the, the dynamic new players. And uh, and but also, you know, our own approach to to understanding what we can do there in terms of you know how what we view as is something that uh, is is good for security. I, I I see a I see a world in the future where we take security against you know a future future flow flow of income that may be coming from something like a carbon credit or a biodiversity credit. Um, I think that's a completely feasible situation that we could could be in. Um, I also think that over time, uh, quite logically, and you made the point, Harry. I think that you know it's we're not we're, you know maybe we'll get to the point where we won't be talking about green finance anymore because we're just talking about finance. Well, you know that means better you know the better financial risks will be uh you know the rate to risk equation means that you know the the more sustainable again come back to that word uh the 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 enterprises the the better the the better rates that we'll be able to offer from a from a lending perspective and you know that's something we want to be building into our model from day one which is you know those those um those potential uh, customers who are who are ready for the ready for the future um, are, are seeing you know better terms because you know it's clearly going to be a sustainable from a financial perspective business for us in, in in the future so we're willing to lend to them in a preferential way and the big the big thing that has to be part of all that then of course is is data and assurance um, and really a real you know clear demonstrable uh, evidence of you know whether that's whether that's you know uh, evidence of um, an improvement in management plans that has led to led to you know say an improved carbon emissions profile or or, or, or biodiversity credit or whatever um you know and again we our approach is is to to build a of a, a data rich proposition um where uh, again we can be a trusted data partner to a to a farmer so that they you know uh, those two things kind of come together in in how how we interact with our customers yeah definitely and that's yeah it steps into the realm of our work of you know, providing certification statements and, and verification to assure that these practices are happening and be able to release funds. But 
you know, it's a new type of business model with, as you know, you mentioned, could be considerable amount of risk, especially if we take in a UK context, there's no absolutely one methodology in place. There's calls for a soil carbon code um, to help farmers all sort of march to the same beat. But, you know, if I'm if I'm approaching Oxbury, let's say, or, or New Foundation as well, and what do you need to see in my business plan to make sure that you are happy to be involved and release funds? We generally take uh, a, an historic and forward-looking view on on both elements of that. We at Oxbury have built uh, an approach which is using technology to be good at what technology is good at and people to be good at what people are good at. We look for data that we can take about who we may be lending to, what they have done in the past, uh, and you know have analytical tools that we can apply in our in our banking platform to 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 appropriately um credit score a potential customer but fundamentally then it's the human side of it which is you know us you know everyone in oxbury from the from the from the it developers through to the uh, underwriters through to the relationship managers are all focused on agriculture farming and food production day in day out it's what everyone gets more specialist at every day they work at oxbury which means that the conversations we have with farmers um, who are going on a, on a, on a transition uh, and moving, you know, into the into the future practices, um, you know, we can really understand uh, who they are, what their plans are, and and why it stacks up and why they're coming to us um, for for lending, um, whether that's uh, for long term or short term credit to achieve their goals. So it's really about uh, bringing back a bit of you know human interaction, you know, which is you know doesn't have to be in, in farming you look across the whole sme banking space that's what people have been crying out for and has been lost in the uk provision and we're, we're bringing it back in in what we see as the sort of key bedrock sector of the, of the economy and in doing that that's why we you know quickly adapt to provide you know bespoke lending products that that have you know a real understanding of what that need might be for example if someone wants to establish an agroforestry scheme we understand that if the uh, tree element of that is a productive tree, so for fruit trees or whatever, um, that you know it, 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 there is a depending on what 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 product that is producing, uh, it may take a certain amount of time before that is an income stream. So we will structure a lending um, proposition around that to ensure that actually the the repayments are weighted to that later point when the asset has become productive. Well, I mean, I, I you know I think that's absolutely brilliant what you're doing, Tim. I think it, you, the way that you've described having a tailored, personal, data-rich way of working with your customers is is exactly what the market needs. And I, and I just I think it's absolutely brilliant. And um, all credit to you and your team for for taking the risk to, to make it happen. And um, talking about you know data rich and and technology, I mean I, I know Paul, you also have um, you know a CTO on your team. Uh, in when I mean technology and, and data surely are going to be playing a big part in when you scale up because I know your ambitions are, are quite larger than your foundation farms that you'll have to have some level of reporting back to your investment pool. Are there any aspects of of technology which you brought in specifically for for regenerative farming or um, are you looking at sort of traditional soil health monitoring and, and well, data capture? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely the wrong person to talk to about <laughs> technology. But you know, if if you if you want to, you know, so Wayne Wayne Gibbons, who's our COO and 
chief technology officer. He is completing a master's in, in agricultural technology at, at the Royal Agricultural University. And he does have a background in tech as a software engineer and entrepreneur. From the broader picture is that you know, we need to, to, to use technology in ways that support regenerative agriculture, not use technology in ways that allow conventional farming that is effectively mining soils to to extend their life i mean it's a it's a bit you know for me it's a bit like the oil industry where we we always talk about peak oil but the oil industry is very clever at finding new technologies softwares finding new oil reserves getting oil you know out of old fields and and so on and so forth so we definitely want to avoid that situation with technology but yeah i mean of course it's going to play you know, a big part in understanding what's going on in the farm, you know, having sensors on, on livestock, understanding their grazing patterns better. I mean, there, there, are all, there are all sorts of different directions you can go off in. I think, you know, for, for this conversation, one of the key technologies is going to be how to, to measure carbon dioxide that's being captured in the field through biological activity through you know in the soil does better data and better technology actually give us a much clearer picture of how much carbon is being stored and and, and is that actually a bit of a game changer in saying well it's a, it's a lot more than we thought it's a lot more permanent yeah so i mean I, you know the, the appropriate use of technology is is really is really really key I mean, we've been talking to some interesting people at Exeter University who are, who are developing sensors to, to do that sort of job at scale and doing it much more cheaply so you don't have to take samples down to the lab, which is, which is very expensive. So, you know, of course, you know, technology can have a very, very meaningful impact in, in terms of the way we, we, we escalate um, regenerative agriculture, for sure. Yeah, I'd just like to come in and just talk about a little interesting example done on the, on the farm about three years ago which is also with the, with the university, so Reading University in this case, um, which was it was uh, using the, uh, the expensive lab approach it was, but it was it was a soil sampling exercise that ran across, um, uh, so on, uh, I'm, I'm on Cotswold Brash, which is oolitic limestone, um, but with um, sort of uh, down watercourses, there are some, some, some richer clayier soils that have been de- uh, deposited. The geology is slightly different where the watercourses are. And I did a, essentially a sort of a slice across one of these shallow valleys from the top of one ridge across to the other, but all the, so they're going across. And the joy of doing that is I managed to encompass essentially two two predominant soil types where um, there was essentially three three land uses on. So an arable an arable field, um, you know, permanent pasture and woodland. And I did, I did not understand all of the data that I was then presented. But once I had been talked through it by by the by the <laughs> scientist, uh, it was pretty apparent to me what capability there is in exactly the same soils depending on how it is managed and farmed and what 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 the use is there and you know the the you know you probably can 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 guess what the, the general profile looked like but you know to to bring in something like then to saying okay well actually fundamentally getting the right mixture on the right soil can make a huge difference in terms of that you know for soil organic matter for example and um you know if you extend that out and you know even I did, a, did a secondary test uh, thereafter which was comparing a, the position of a of a hedge down the middle of two arable parcels 
uh, you know, and the uh, equidistant points either side of it, and the difference. So again, it's exactly the same soil type. Just having the hedge there, and the the the, the difference that was making to not just the uh, soil organic carbon, but also other nutrient profiles in there was was stark. And it's that kind of knowledge sharing thing we talked about at the beginning that that is really that that gets people to sit up and go, hang on a second, there's something about you know because fundamentally what we're talking about here is soil health when it comes to regenerative agriculture. The soil soil is the great asset. Uh, that is there for for all of us to take huge advantage of, right? It's the it's it's the it's the <laughs> it is the bedrock, as it were, uh, from which you know everything else goes. And I just think it's really important that uh, that kind of knowledge sharing gets gets demonstrated, and then then from that, um, everyone from um, from from scientists, soil scientists, to technologists, to farmers, uh, and and the people like us who finance all of those activities can get really excited about you know transforming uh transforming our soil health it's um an interesting thing when you you know when you're looking at the soil and and suddenly it becomes that asset you're talking about and you know with an asset there's value and that value is likely to go up which then brings into play land price and, and land value which could go up considerably under uh, these systems or even on you know land where there's large improvements to be made uh because of these new markets where uh, someone could suddenly make a lot of money um, drawing carbon into soil uh, and selling those credits on. But what I'm interested or you know slightly worried about is you see the headlines of uh, Microsoft buying however many millions of credits and, and Bill Gates buying massive amount of farmland. And uh, just don't get me wrong here, Paul, at all. I'm not drawing comparison between new foundation farms and that at all. I know you guys have very strict manifesto, and uh, but how do you how do you prevent uh, big money in inverted commas essentially performing land grabbing, or is it a problem? Is it a problem if that happens? That's you know it's such it's such a topical issue, isn't it? You know we we live in a world where there, there seems to be a, a billionaire that's been minted every other day, and somehow or the other we're, we're taught about trickle down economics and um, that the money comes all the way down to the common uh, man and woman, but somehow or the other <laughs> doesn't feel like that when you're kind of living on Main Street. So, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I was here, re- remember a, a talk that Mark Carney was given, giving. So he, he was the um, ex-governor of the Bank of England. And they say, you know, whenever Mark Carney is in the room, he's the smartest guy there. And he was, he was taught, he, he talks about, the climate crisis as the tragedy of the horizons and that's piggybacking on a term they call the tragedy of the commons yes yeah. um and i i, I think if you re- if you really you know get under the bonnet of that term the tragedy of the commons what it what economists or you know very commercially orientated people are saying is that you can't trust the public to look after the land because they will overuse it, they will overgraze it, and and the land will deteriorate. Now, you know, now maybe, you know, joking aside, if they do it regeneratively, that's not going to be the case. But, but, but yeah. seriously, I do think there is this sort of meta narrative that, you know, the public doesn't know how to look after the land because somehow or the other, this idea of the tragedy of the commons is. Is, is is a you know a fixed narrative that that we don't challenge. So, you know, I I, I do I do believe somehow or the other that 
having a much stronger connection with the land through farming, through regenerative agriculture is is a key to 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 bring this issue you know right up the political agenda and mm. taking a look at you know why are these billionaires land grabbing you know and and we can have a conversation about that it might not be land grabbing they might be doing something that's absolutely brilliant i i don't know but it should absolutely be a part of the nation's conversation yeah and i suppose if you you know look at your personal journey to to going on that permaculture course you know it feels like perhaps you've had this reawakening with with land and food and uh, and it's provided uh that vision for you going into new foundation farms oh yeah no absolutely i mean it was um it was a bit of a shock to the system actually doing that permaculture course and getting a whole um new body of knowledge because it you just look at everything in a completely diff- different light and you know your relationship to to food the land to farming to the to ecology to climate you know to the oceans to, to everything absolutely you know it, it does change and it, you know it changes for the better but of course we're, we're living in a world that um believes that resources aren't finite and that you can continue extracting and that it will be fine and you know we we know it's not and we know that there are better ways of doing things so hats off to to all of us for being at the forefront of of you know bringing this knowledge out out to the wider public harry can i just uh, not not to immediately pick off that last point but because because i agree uh in terms of um you know we we are obviously I think I think probably the correct terminology now is how do we move the economy to being more sort of circular? Because uh, mm-hmm. I I agree with that from a, from not just in agriculture but in, in everything. And um, you know I think well you know we talked a bit earlier about um, about farmers feeling a bit sometimes under under attack. But I think you know I'm sometimes surprised at how certain other sectors aren't under attack. And I know this is one that is also uh, I think close to close to Paul's interest, which is you know I think that, for example the the, the textile industry for example is uh, and 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 fashion and clothing is is, is a you know uh, you try and you try and go and recycle your clothes and see how easy that is for example uh, it's not very easy uh, and i th- you know but uh, so uh, that was a bit of a segue but it was sort of just to sort of what i'm now going to do is something even more bizarre which is um <laughs> slightly is it defend large institutions and industry a bit because they are, because uh, you know, we were talking about, you know, you know, at the, at the very top end of that, Microsoft, Bill Gates, you know, um, super large companies. But you know, large institutions are delivering, um, you know, uh, uh, they have huge customer reach, which is why they're large, right? And um, so, uh, you know, there are many, many times where I could say some slightly negative things about, say, supermarkets uh, in, in the UK. But actually, I think there's a lot of really interesting, progressive and including regenerative ideas going on within the British supermarkets right now. Um, they have a real, I think, uh, they're, they're undergoing a mindset shift into taking some responsibility for uh, understanding their supply chains, not just from a from a from a carbon uh, and GHG emissions uh, perspective in terms of understanding, you know, what what, what are the, is the emissions profile in their supply chain, but but also more widely, you know, what is what, what is the impact of their actions on their suppliers? Now, some of that is coming about because of regulation and legislation, uh, and that's that's good, and obviously that's where the government is 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 doing the right thing. And we, we've mentioned, you know, Mark Carney as the as the as the former governor of the Bank of England, and obviously, you know, we, we are a bank, and we you know um, operate under license 
uh, by regulation from the Bank of England and others. Um, and, and a big part of what we have to do is uh, report on and understand our management of, of climate risk with both the physical risks and the transition risks. Um, and that's a key part of our, our strategy is how to be at the forefront of doing that appropriately. But we also see tying those two things together, that there is there is a role for government, there is a role for regulation, there is a role for the market, because if you are a large listed in, you know, supermarket in the UK uh, and you fail to adapt to this changing mindset, you're, you're not going to be delivering shareholder value um, or, or stakeholder value for that matter, which has also been in the, in the press uh, just this week about um, potentially a, um, some changes to the to the companies that, that may come that that. Uh, make that an even bigger part of what companies have to do. So I think there's some really interesting activities going on, and um, there is a role for for large enterprise as well as small enterprise. And in fact, not just the, is there a role. In fact, again, everyone has to pull together in the same direction um, if we're going to achieve the goals that we want of um, you know sustainable, healthy food production in a, in a world that is no longer heating. Yes, uh, completely agree with you. You know, I've sadly never been described as the smartest person in the room ever, but uh, <laughs> I, I I can appreciate the role, and I completely understand the role of of the large companies. And you know, at Control Union, we you know we talk to a lot of these companies, and you know there is a real interest in uh, greening supply chains, in working with their suppliers to to help them transition. And the change is going to come from larger companies adopting greener mindsets. And that can be sometimes a difficult pill for the grassroots uh, movements to swallow because it does appear as a slight juxtaposition, perhaps, to some people who are uh, more on the ground uh, and at the beginning of these movements. But you see it in everything. You've seen it sort of in organic. I mean, organic really kicked off when regulation was brought in across the EU. And, you know, organic's getting to a point now where uh, you know, you mentioned Riverford, Paul, um, you know, where it's completely competitive to buy your vegetables from that vegetable box uh, as 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 well as going to the supermarket and buying non-organic food. So it needs that systems change. I mean, we've said systems and transition a fair bit on this uh, podcast, but, that you know, they would be two of my major takeaways is system change that's that's got to happen and you know money does uh, facilitate systems change at the end of the day yeah for sure i mean I, tim's point about the, the major organizations being a part of the solution is absolutely agree with that 100 percent. and also with grassroots movements you know taking a lead and showing the way and it's really important that those two groups of people connect and you know work with each other to, to to move the whole system forward i always try and draw this uh, podcast to a bit of an end by trying to get some advice from the from from our guests and i was just wondering you know i don't mind who goes first but you know what are three uh, nuggets or three bits of uh, information you've learned or wish you'd learned earlier which would have helped um or will will help an operation who's looking to transition or uh, make their their operation appealing to someone looking to invest in in green uh, in green farming. One I've already mentioned, but I'm going to say it again, which is there's a few things I wish I'd done sooner because I was worried that I was letting you know the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think um, so that the first sort of nugget is um, identify something small and manageable that can be started, you know, kind of today. 
I think is 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 nugget sort of number one um because uh, that once you start the journey actually it becomes much more exciting and engaging and interesting however small your first idea might be so so number one would be get going I think number two I think um I think the role of partnership I think there's a really interesting sort of feature of uh in in british agriculture of sort of small c conservatism uh, which is kind of uh means that you you're part of your local community and economy but sometimes you feel quite separate from it and it's very much like you know you don't think too much about what's happening outside the boundary because you're so busy focusing on what is going on inside the boundary and so i suppose it's look over the hedge sooner and have a conversation sooner with your farming neighbors but other actors around you. Um, I've had some really great conversations with some local uh, NGOs in my area, environmental and eco- ecological charities and uh, local ecologists. I happen to, you know, being in Oxfordshire, also reaching out to the universities was, was, was again, something I have, have now done. I wish I'd done sooner because there's so many people who are enthusiastic and, and happy to offer advice, some of it overwhelming. Talk to some of the people who you think might disagree with you. Uh, you know, I think it's really, really important to be challenged and also then to challenge back. You know, I think that the, the importance here is that, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm sure you're finding this, Harry, but, you know, ask one person for a definition of you know, regenerative agriculture and then ask the next and you're going to get a slightly different answer. Um, we, we're all on a bit of a learning curve. And I think the best way that we um, can 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 all move together is to is to challenge each other in, in, a, in a friendly and, and, and collaborative but occasionally a bit combative way as well um and don't don't be afraid to defend defend your corner but also don't be don't be afraid to go you know what actually i think i really should stop doing that or start doing that and paul gonna have to you've had your time <laughs> so i mean i i'm, I'm not going to give any any advice to farmers because i think i think that would be you know that, that I, that'd be far too cheeky but i, mm. I can give you know advice to entrepreneurs that that are looking to start you know businesses in, in the world of um, regenerative enterprises and, and regenerative agriculture and the, the first thing is to keep your messages simple so the people that are investing can have a, a real clarity the second thing is when you're developing your your business model make sure that it it's not reliant on subsidies and the third thing is to be able to show your impacts and how you measure them so those would be the the three pieces of advice keep it simple have a, a business that doesn't need subsidies and be able to demonstrate what your impacts are excellent thank you i mean that's been absolutely fascinating for me um i've learned a lot and hopefully it'll be helpful for people out there you know i'm really taking away from that conversation you know transition can take time um you know look over your hedge pick a fight and then settle your fight um you know keep your messaging simple work on the business plan outside of subsidies you know uh and show what you've done that i think the data side of this is going to be so key and it's still a new concept to some people out there but really will uh, be the difference for farms to be able to unlock um, additional income uh, but thank you both very very much for your time today if you'd like any more information on, on what we've discussed today please find the links in the episode notes join us again on the regen agri podcast next month in the meantime you can subscribe to the regen agri podcast 
follow us on Twitter at regenagri underscore cu and visit the website regenagri.org. See you next time.